Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics of the 90s and 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Emily Beijing. And I am your other host, Margot Poupard. Today's episode marks our season eight finale. Yay! Boo. Boo. <laughs> it's a bittersweet. It's a bittersweet one. It was, uh, a, it was actually a, a down-tempo woo, but yes, also boo. <laughs> Before I go into my intro for today's episode, I wanted to ask you, Margot, I know we kind of talked about this during our 100th episode, but was there an episode this particular season that was a standout or a favorite for you? I think I really liked our Urban Outfitters American Apparel episode. That was really fun. That was a good time. I mean, like, you know, not like uh, not fun in like the traditional sense, but fun in terms of it was interesting to learn about the people behind the brands that we just sort of like have mindlessly bought from since high school, like middle school, high school, and just sort of find out exactly how deranged they all are, especially the Urban Outfitters free people, dude. Like that's a cult. That's a mess. That was hilarious. I mean, parts of it, like all of the siblings and the whole family being involved. But that was probably like my favorite and also kind of like more fun to research too. I also enjoyed our Hollywood hotspots episode. Yeah. I liked our hotspots episode a lot. And I think I am probably on the same page as you. I really enjoyed our season premiere where we talked about American Apparel and Urban Outfitters. Um, just the amount of research I did for Urban, partially because it was our first episode, so I had a lot more time. But like, I went full on succession. I mean, it's just the I could do a family tree at this point. It's didn't it's you something. call it dumb succession? Though? <laughs> I think I called it dumb succession. It really is though. Like it's succession for mass produced clothing that every teenager wears, thinking that they're unique and special. Dumb succession. 
well, I think we had a lot of fun this season. I think there were some, like we just talked about, memorable episodes for sure. Um, today's episode, though, our finale is an interesting one uh, because it's about movies that we come back to on an at least annual basis. And it's usually around this time of year, so December holiday-ish season. And they may not be what we'd call traditionally, quote-unquote, holiday movies, but they are holiday-ish or holiday-adjacent. They they take place during Christmas time or Thanksgiving or Halloween. I mean, in one case, one of our movies takes place pretty much every season except for summer, I think. And what I love about this list um, is that I can watch them around this time of year. But like in the case of You've Got Mail, you and I both agree that we watch it around the first day of fall every year. And likely I will watch it around Christmas and maybe even in the spring because it ends on the spring. Um, And this year, when I decided to watch it on the first day of fall, it's when I burned that unfortunate Bath and Body Works or uh, candle, (laughs) which just like stunk up the joint. But the movie was wonderful, as always. The candle. Yeah, don't put the candle on the movie. All right. The movie didn't have any part of that. And I can tell you, I already caught part of You've Got Mail recently because, you know, now is the time that like your TBSs or TNTs Mm -hmm. or or your Paramount or whatever, even TCM, which is kind of like deeply upsetting that movies from our childhood (laughs) are now making it onto TCM as classic movies. I'm like, you shut your mouth, Mankiewicz. I know. Don't you say that to me. I know. But I caught the end, and every single time, the end of You've Got Mail makes me cry on cue. Me too. I I really don't understand it, but I'm just sitting there sobbing, only watching the last, you know, 10, 15 minutes of her being like, I really wanted it to be you crying. Like, this movie is the best. But also, so is While You Were Sleeping. I feel like While You Were Sleeping is is sort of the underdog. I think it's it's on the come up. I feel like people are getting wise to While You Were Sleeping to see it for the perfect 90s Christmas rom-com that it is instead of being like oh it's creepy that she's in love with the guy in a coma like it's not it's fine just let's let's suspend our disbelief and be (laughs) charmed by Sandra Bullock for just five minutes and just and watch her be enthralled with Bill Pullman I don't see what the problem is I mean both of these movies have elements of stalking to them let's just be clear right like oh for sure but it's charming stalking so it's fine right it's it's charming stalking it's great writing it's great um you know it's it's all the rom-com tropes that we like and are not ridiculous that make these movies that save these movies that keep them um as the movies that they, we still watch 20 almost 25 years later for you've got mail and close to 30 years later for while you were sleeping uh, like you know i think that for how dated some of those tropes could seem or even the technology in you've got mail like they surprisingly have stood the test of time where i think some other rom-coms that people would have thought were more timeless in the 90s or quote unquote you know now are seen as like super problematic cuz they have a lot of issues tied to them um but I think in both cases, they're two really great movies and it's a real testament to the writing. But I think more importantly, the chem- the chemistry between the two actors, like I still love Sandra Bullock and Bill Pullman. Like we talk about both of them and obviously Meg and Tom, I mean, give us a fourth movie already for Christ's sake. Like, <laughs> well, I think much like the net, 
You've Got Mail preserves a certain era of the internet that I think is actually really important to see. Yes. I think you can explain dial-up and signing on to AOL all you want and having to amass a sea of 30-minute AOL disks that you, so you could get onto the internet. You can explain that till you're blue in the face, but it's not until you see Meg Ryan on that clunky, clunky Mac Typing away with I don't even know what kind of font that is, like wingdings type font. <laughs> but I really, I, it's it's also it's it makes it more it makes the movie more charming by having really that does. sort of like dinosaur in the middle of the room, known as '90s dial-up and email. I mean, there's just so much of of that, the new technology or then new technology being shown like a clunky, what we laugh at being such a clunky MacBook for the time. And then on the flip side of that, you know, we still to this day have resistance to technology, be it the new app or the new device that we're supposed to have. And we see that very much in um, in Greg Kinnear's character, Frank Nogaski, who insists on, you know, collecting an absurd amount of typewriters and writes all his columns on typewriters. Like there's just something that the more things change, the more they stay the same. But this one, to your point, is a really lovely time capsule of a world where you wouldn't even think someone was truly catfishing you. Like this is before we knew catfishing. People had online dating horror stories. Like it's such a different world we live in now that it's 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 nostalgia we're in a weird way (laughs) yeah it's interesting that like my one of my other all-time favorite rom-coms that has nothing to do with the holidays is pillow talk about and it's doris day and rock hudson share a party line which is not something that anyone would know about unless you're like much like you're of the 60s essentially and so there was no staying power to that sort of like fad technology but email and internet has persisted so i do find like it kind of is a gamble when you want to put some tech and you want to center it around your whole movie and i mean what a boost to aol everybody had to have an aol email address after that movie yeah absolutely Um, Before we start talking about our movies, I would love to hear if you have any other honorable mentions on this list of holiday adjacent or holiday-ish rom-coms. And they don't have to be 90s, 2000s. Yeah. I mean, I guess the obvious answer is When Harry Met Sally because that's the other perfect holiday movie that follows a very similar pattern to You've Got Mail in terms of like it follows seasons, like it starts in the fall and ends at New Year's. I mean, like in parts, right? Like we meet mm-hmm. them. We meet them in, or I guess it's summer because they just graduated from college and then we leave them like in New Year's, like holiday time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also like a perfect holiday adjacent movie. Um, I don't really. Do you have any? I don't really, I really can't think of anything else off the top I- of my head. I mean, I think that mixed, maybe mixed nuts would be a good uh, one to add on there. Another Um, Nora Ephron movie. Another Nora Ephron movie. And I mean, Sleepless in Seattle less so, but there is, you know, the celebrating of holidays in that one, which, um, which to me, you know, kind of works. I think Nora Ephron for, she captures holidays very, very well. 
um, the holiday traditions, the family meals, the you know chosen family gatherings. Like she, she had a real eye for that. And um, I really, if if anyone wants a recommendation, one, um, the, her documentary on HBO that was directed by her son with Carl Bernstein, whose name is blanking me right now uh, or is leaving my head, but. Um, highly recommend that documentary if it's still on HBO. Who knows? Warner Brothers may have shut it off just as I said it. I, I put it in the ether and they're probably going to shut it down. Fuck them. <laughs> uh, but I really recommend that. And have you read um, I'll Have What She's Having? I have not, but have you? I haven't, no. Um, so that's a biography on her. And then, I mean, in general, like you just can't go wrong with any of Nora Ephron's essays. And she definitely talks a lot about the holidays and includes a lot of her recipes in her essays. So, um, she's just a great writer to read around this time of year in general. Yeah. I almost wanted to say, um, oh no, now I forgot. It was another rom-com, but it wasn't necessary. Oh, uh, The Family Stone. Not a oh, rom-com, yes. but a rom-drop. And it takes place over Christmas. So I don't know if that necessarily counts. But Yes. Yeah, that's a good one for sure. I don't think we've ever really – we talked about it in bits and pieces on the podcast, but definitely mm-hmm. a, a great one that, that people sometimes forget. But like it's like you want to kind of be that family, but you also don't because they suck in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It, yes. A good – a good – Rom drum, uh, yes. that takes place, and it's a little claustrophobic because it takes place mostly in that house. Yeah, so there is that to also consider. Yes, and that way absolutely. it feels really like being with that family the whole time. Absolutely. <laughs> Do you want to get into while you were sleeping? Yes, since it was it precedes you've got mail. I feel like a lot of the behind the scenes, the background of how this all kind of comes together. And then also the, what comes after like the success of while you were sleeping or in some cases like non-success um, start and end with the writers. Cause this was written by Frederick Le- LeBeau and Dan Sullivan. Um, they had been trying to break into the industry at this point since the mid eighties. And for context, while you were sleeping came out in 1995 Dan had on the side worked as a fry cook at his parents' restaurant in New England and would sometimes top off his income as an elevator operator. Frederick washed dishes and manned an information desk at the Pritkin Center. It's an upscale Miami spa frequented by the rich and famous. Like, uh, citation needed if it's still open. I did not look into that. Uh, They were so desperate that at one point they decided to anonymously slip a script into one of the postal slots at the spa that belonged to comedian and producer Rodney Dangerfield. He never got back to them. The idea for While You Were Sleeping came to them one day when they were talking about Frederick's terrible love life. Quote, I told Danny, even if I wanted to, I couldn't get a date with the woman who was brain dead. Problematic. (laughs) (laughs) And the words brain dead and date were enough to give them the idea for a treatment that they would later call coma girl about a woman who bangs her head and spends most of the movie unconscious in a hospital, which (laughs) I, I love that the trope of a woman bangs her head and then stuff happens because of said head injury, LOL. I I love that. This is a trope that reaches back this far. (laughs) (laughs) And so recently was, was, was brought into back into the pop culture universe. Mm -hmm. Thanks to Lindsay Lohan. Right. We got to get these these ladies bonking their heads so they can forget who they are and spend most of the time <laughs> unconscious in a hospital. 
So in that iteration of Coma Girl, they pitched it to Meg Ryan's production company. And the reception was something. Quote, her development executive said to us, firstly, why would Meg want to do this movie if she's in a coma for most of it? And secondly, you guys are creeps. It's kind of predatory with this guy telling this comatose woman's family that he's engaged to her. Why don't you flip it around? Let the woman be fabricating the story. Then it's no longer predatory. It's funny. After this change, they met a different producer, uh, Arthur Sarkisian, who would later go on to produce the Rush Hour trilogy. Uh, they, they might be making a fourth one, maybe. Uh, so that guy with this different producer though he decides to pay them these two unknowns ten thousand dollars to write the version of the script where it's gender flipped and then they decide then they turn that into what they then pitched around as coma guy anyway by 1994 there was a bidding war between studios and paramount was declared the winner but only if these two chuckleheads name renamed the movie to while you were sleeping They ended up selling the script in the high six figures. And also, While You Were Sleeping was not originally supposed to be a holiday movie. Quote, we didn't set it at Christmas while we were writing it. It evolved into that. The studios wanted it to be set during the holidays so they'd make it easier to sell. It was also originally set in Brooklyn, but then moved to Chicago. Hence, Sandra's foot fetish neighbor's accent. It's not quite Chicago. It's more Brooklyn. (laughs) It's more (laughs) Long Island. Um. Yet the fulfillment of their lifelong dream of finally selling a script was tinged with sadness as Frederick's father passed away the night before their sale on the script closed, and Dan, by contrast, had to celebrate his brother's lottery win. While We Were Sleeping also was a big break, not only for the writers, but for an opportunity for the director, John Turtletop. He had a big hit with Cool Runnings the year before, but success can be a double-edged sword because he was now typecast as a director of cute family comedies. Quote, the only movies I got to that got sent to me were kids movies. Everything was a kids movie. Every script had some kid with a disease and some animal who was his best friend. (laughs) You were called to slash film in 2010. I was desperate to find a real romantic comedy because because that was like a real grown up movie. So while you were sleeping ended up being released February 21st in 1985. It wasn't a critical success, but it was a financial one. While you were sleeping is Sandra Bullock's biggest box office success to date. And at the time, no one really questioned why Bullock's character would want to spend chunks of a movie lusting over a guy that's clinging to life in an ICU ward. Instead, a lot of the commentary was, of course, about her looks. Quote, a shy, gorgeous heroine slash wallflower tradition. She drowns in oversized clothing as Annie Hall did, and it seems that she's in a perpetual state of comic dishevelment, the New York Times wrote. But doesn't really matter because While You Were Sleeping grossed $182 million on a budget of $17 million, and Sandra went on to become one of the biggest stars in the next decade. But both writers would never sell or make another movie after this. Ooh. I know. It's kind of a bummer. That's, yeah. Because John Turtletop's still out here wrecking hella shit. Thanks to Nicolas Cage and, you know, the Declaration of Independence, he's never going to be without a job. <laughs> Well, didn't they turn? Well, he's. Probably, I don't know if he's directing it, but didn't aren't they going to turn that into a TV show? I think you're right. Yeah, because Disney Plus just doesn't know what else to do. You know, they got to make up for all the money they spent on the IP. Like, I mean, that was theirs to begin with, but like, you know, it's. I'm sure they paid Jerry Bruckheimer something, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so a little bit about the casting. So by the time John Turtletop got to greenlight the to direct the movie, Harrison Ford and Gina Davis, who had originally been considered for roles and been tied to the movie backed out and had moved on to talk to Demi Moore. And so this movie was written with a few people in mind. Obviously they went to 
asking Meg Ryan at one point back when it was still a comatose woman. And she was like, why would I do this? But really the person that they had in mind for a while was Demi Moore. And among the other people that they met with, they almost met with Nicole Kidman. According to IMDb, she auditioned for the role. But John Turtletop thought both Demi Moore and Nicole Kidman were both too pretty uh, and just like unrealistically going to be able to work this job. Like so like I said, or you said earlier, they considered Meg Ryan for this role because of her production company. They chopped it to her. And they even considered Julia Roberts at one point. Um, but all of them as Arthur Sarkeesian the executive producer, best put it, were too famous at the time. You couldn't see an A-lister being a toll booth operator. Like this is kind of a blue collar job. And all of these women were really, really big actresses. And enter Sandra Bullock, who at the time had just gotten off one of her breakthrough roles in Speed as more of a supporting role, but was still very much an actor who auditioned for things. She really liked the story, wanted the part. And when she auditioned, casting co-director Kathy Sandrish said, Everyone cried when she did the scene where she explains everything at Peter's bedside. Sandra Bullock was offered the role and she apparently could relate to it because she had just gotten out of a four-year relationship. So she was in the headspace to be in that role. And in terms of Jack, as I mentioned earlier, Harrison Ford was tied to the role at one point. But once John Turtletaub was on board to direct, they began auditioning other people. So while Demi Moore was still in consideration... Patrick Swayze was tied to the role because of their chemistry and ghost a few years prior. And James Spader, Dylan McDermott, Pearson Brosnan, Dennis Quaid, and Matthew McConaughey were all considered to read for the role. And McConaughey specifically was not cast because of his accent. And he told them that he could do a non-Texic accent, but they like didn't believe him, which like, I mean, you just don't try to take that away from McConaughey. That is, that comes with, it's like his accessory. Like he, he just can't. <laughs> um, and then according to IMDb, Russell Crowe's name was floated around at the time, but Turtle Top did not want to cast him. And this is like before um, LA Confidential. So I'm, I don't think Russell Crowe was that known outside of Australia. Correct me if I'm wrong, because this is before Gladiator and like a bunch of his other big movies. Yeah, Gladiator is until like ninety nine. Yeah, probably two thousand. Later, I he was uh, probably still a mostly Australian actor. I would agree. Enter Bill Pullman, who at the time had only really played other man in rom coms, most notably in Sleepless in Seattle, where Meg Ryan leaves him and ends up with Tom Hanks. According to Bill Pullman, he didn't. He said, "Quote: I really didn't think of myself of romantic comedies as my turf. At that point, I was embarrassed about the preciousness of it. But I read the script, and I was like, wow, this is a classic story. The casting co-director, Kathy Sandrich, liked that he had an innate sweetness and a, quote, nice working class feel, <laughs> which just like, is that what you, how you describe, like, Bruce Springsteen? Like... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and as for Peter Gallagher being cast as Peter, Sandrich said it was because he was gorgeous and he could just look really good as a comatose guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Gallagher said for a long period of time, and this is true about his career in the late 80s, early 90s, he fit the yuppie asshole mold well. And he thinks that they were thinking of him when they wrote that part because the character's name is Peter Ga- Callahan. So a very Irish sounding name. Um, so he... Uh, you know, took that role, but at the time very much played kind of second fiddle in those types of movies. Um, You said you had a story, though, about Peter Gallagher. 
Yes, not like my close personal friend Peter Gallagher's story, more like a behind the scenes, uh, his method acting Peter Gallagher. In several interviews when he's been asked about while you were sleeping, which he gets asked about quite frequently because it came up in almost everything that I read um, about the movie of and the making of. He said that he <laughs> he decided that he was going to go fully asleep while he was supposed to be playing unconscious. And so he would just lull himself to sleep and would just be passed out for hours in his own words. And I'm going to, this is not like fully the letter, but in his own words saying like, I let myself be vulnerable in front of like actors that I respect and whatever happens happened and they didn't tell me and I don't want to know. So he's obviously talking about farting. (laughs) But I just think that he's such a good sport. But yeah, he just talked about how that was his whole thing. He's like, I was just, I just, sort of slept that's how I looked so unconscious I I was on some (laughs) level he's such a funny like I I've always liked him whenever I've seen him in an interview and he always for for playing apart from Sandy Cohen his uh, role on the OC he always kind of plays some shade of asshole for being and in real life it's just such a nice sweet man so good for you Peter Gallagher and good for your eyebrows (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, so the other movie that we're going to talk about today is the delightful You've Got Mail. And uh, there is just, I can't say enough good things about Nora Ephron and her attention to detail because this movie is just a prime example of it. Released December 18th, 1998, You've Got Mail was directed by Nora Ephron, obviously. And this film marks the third and final for now, we can all wish for another one collaboration between Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Their first film together, not directed or penned by Nora Ephron, was Joe and the Volcano, followed by Nora Ephron's Sleepless in Seattle. Nora Ephron co-wrote the script with her sister and frequent collaborator Delia Ephron, and they overall co-wrote six film scripts together. The movie was produced by Lauren Schuller Donner Productions, now known as The Donner's Company, run by Lauren Schuller Donner and her husband, Richard Donner, both very well-known producers. Lauren Schuller Donner is best now known for producing the X-Men movies, but back then had most recently had a hit with the Free Willy franchise. Hmm. This film is a modern adaptation of the 1940 film The Shop Around a Corner starred, that stars Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan and the 1949 movie musical In the Good Old Summertime, which stars Judy Garland, both of which were inspired by the 1937 Hungarian play Parfumerie by Miklos Laszlo, and I'm sure I butchered that pronunciation. You've Got Mail obviously references a shop around the corner by naming Kathleen Kelly's store after it. In case you've been living under a rock, a brief plot summary of You've Got Mail, Meg Ryan plays Kathleen Kelly, a woman who owns and operates the shop around the corner, a small children's bookstore in the Upper West Side of New York. Her sworn enemy is Joe Fox, played by Tom Hanks, who works for his family's large chain, a la Barnes & Noble bookstore, Fox Books, which sells lower-priced books and... He compares it to selling the like olive oil at Costco. Kathleen and Joe, unbeknownst to their significant others, have secret secret AOL pen pals that they email an IM with. And unbeknownst to Kathleen and Joe, those respective pen pals are one another. The movie title obviously comes from the iconic You've Got Mail notification people received when logging into AOL and getting an email. Efron decided to update it in a modern setting because one, she wanted it to be relatable, but two, she was actually very tech savvy and was an early adopter of email, among other things. 
She also woven elements of Pride and Prejudice in both the story of Joe and Kathleen, but literally in the movie as it comes up multiple times with the two characters. The movie was very much shot on the Upper West. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Side, which is where Nora Ephron lived at the time. Ephron had grown up in LA but absolutely loved New York, and she basically lived there most of her adult life barring the D.C. years where she was married to Carl Bernstein, which she hated and talks about in Heartburn. <laughs> in terms of making the bookstore a children's bookstore, Delia Efron has stated it was because she and Nora grew up loving children's books more than anything. And for them, they always tried to make movies as personal as possible. Nora Ephron saw New York as being a, a place of villages and making it almost like a small town. And she always gave the example of bakeries delivering and leaving bread in front of delis and restaurants in the early morning and how they would never get stolen. She was such a meticulous director. And in order to make the Upper West Side really feel like a village with the same people over the course of the changing seasons, she added little Easter eggs. There are a lot in the same extras you'll see throughout the movie. And if you look at the flower shop shown throughout the movie, you'll notice the florist is pregnant in the beginning. They made the actress wear a pad. And later, you'll see an it's a girl sign outside of the shop. Additionally, Efron wanted it to seem legit that Meg Ryan could be someone who owned a bookstore. And so she had her, along with Heather Burns, who plays Christina, rehearse and work in an actual bookstore for a week before filming. She also thought a lot about Meg's wardrobe in the movie and wanted to strike a chord with her being both quirky but also not a total bag lady, which the production designer in this Vanity Fair oral history referred to it as making sure she didn't look like she didn't shave her armpits, which just makes me think, like, were they thinking she'd be like feminist bookstore owners from Portlandia? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I That is an interesting comment. I don't think there's anything about Meg Ryan that would ever make you think that. I don't either. <laughs> anyway, Efron also in her film budgets allocated time for rehearsals before shooting to ensure she knew which jokes played and which didn't. She also, rather than having your average craft services table, would order catering based on what she wanted to try restaurant wise in the neighborhood. And she was also so meticulous about the food in the movie. So the food spread in the publishing party was supposed to be made super lavish down to the caviar garnish. And that line that Meg Ryan says, that caviar is a garnish, was purposely written by Efron because she had always wanted to include the word uh, garnish in a movie because she thought it was a funny word. 
there were avocados in this like lavish food spread. And she asked Jimmy Mazzola, who was the prop guy, if they were Haas avocados, which she didn't specify in the script. And when he replied that they weren't and that she had not specified that in the script, she said, oh, that's so sad. Like it was this woman. I mean, just details. Anyway, the final Nora Ephron walks so Nathan Fielder could run moment is truly <laughs> the fielderist of them all. She obviously couldn't film in a real Barnes and Noble for Fox Books, so she instead used a recently shuttered Barney's and had an estimated 25,000 books from 30 publishers wheeled into the space and they made it an authentic looking bookstore down to the books being in all the correct sections for genres and whatnot and a working coffee bar. <laughs> so she opened her own, what's that bar called? Like a oh, crocodile God, like lounge? The, cr- <laughs> yes, pretty much. Pretty I much. hope she like, wheels it to Portland. I, that I, is, that is bonkers. <laughs> that's, that's a lot, but it makes total sense. Cause it, it wasn't on a soundstage. So how else no. would she have been able to, achieve the effect of a Barnes and Nobles like bookstore. But uh, yeah, the that's genius though, even though that on paper sounds absolutely crazy. But it works. And it's like crazy. Like you're right. It sounds yeah. absolutely asinine. And yet it works so well. Like that scene, you're just like, oh, this is of course supposed to be a Barnes and Noble. It's, but also yeah. even all of the setup shots, setup shots of it being literally around the corner from shop around the corner, like you would yes. need a storefront to sort of illustrate that point. Right. So yeah. it makes sense that something of that size is a fucking shuttered Barney's. Jeez. <laughs> Blow my mind. Well, that's great. That's that's interesting. Very interesting. Nora and Delia summarize the movie as, quote, can you fall in love with a Republican? Which is to say, (laughs) when people are asked what characteristics they want in a partner, they often rattle off their own personality traits or some, you know, shade of their own personality traits. And this movie wanted to show that oftentimes love wins over what you think you want out of a person trait wise. And Heather Burns even said, like, when she was filming, she was like, you know, 25 or something when she was in the movie. And she remembers telling Nora Ephron, like, I don't believe that that um, Joe and Kathleen would end up together. Like, he put her out of business. And uh, Efron, Nora Ephron was just like, when you get older, you will understand. Like, you will understand why they ended up together. And it is kind of, you know, she is one of those people who is the eternal optimist. Like, she does have sad moments in her movies. But love does win generally in her rom-coms, which works. And what you think you want out of a person trait-wise might be very different than the person you actually should be with. And maybe in some ways, like, it's interesting because I think the Joe Fox of 1998 would be very different if this movie were set in, you know, 2022 when you're thinking, you know, how the rich have gotten richer and the poor have gotten poorer. There's a re- there's another reason why this movie works so well encapsulated in 1998 versus 2022. Right. Those are like what the Clinton heyday years. <laughs> yes, I yes, I have um, a couple of things about deleted scenes and storylines, sure. but I'm going to let you get into some casting first because I I want to make sure I don't say too much if there are any like duplicates. I don't think there will be because I felt like I didn't really find a lot of info leading up to people's casting. I read like the original EW article that they did on uh, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan reuniting and doing it again with Nora Ephron. I read that whole thing and it was... (sighs) 
I wasn't sure if the writer's intent was to make it seem that like Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks don't really get along or have much in common outside of their work together or what. But the whole thing starts, the whole article starts when they are in between takes and they're at a cafe and Tom Hanks is telling Meg Ryan about a story that he read recently about a famous telescope that the lube for said telescope, the stuff that you use for it is like they only have 20 gallons of it left and they don't make it anymore. And like they have to find an alternative. And if they make it like it's it's going to be this whole complicated thing. And like he drones on and on. And she's like, mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And the writer is noticing all of this. He's like, and now they're back together. I'm like, what are you trying to tell me that they don't have like real life chemistry? They don't need to have real life chemistry. They're at work. But I just found that to be a really a very 90s way to start an article, like just sort of oh, like for sure. backhanded shade. Well, not that shade is backhanded, but like backhanded, like compliment. Like you can't really tell what this is supposed to be. But similar to what you had already mentioned, though, the casting of Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks coming back together starts with the producer, Julie Dirk, who pitches the idea of updating the 1940 movie, The Shop Around the Corner, with with email. Took that idea, pitched it, got passed to a partner at Schuler Donner, but then finally made its way to amazing Amy Pascal, who then pitched it to Nora Ephron, who then turned around and convinced Tom Hanks that being this movie wasn't going to make him any more compared to Jimmy Stewart because that was his whole gripe in this EW article is that he didn't want to come back and especially do a movie that does have Jimmy Stewart in it. But before Jimmy Stewart was really famous, like pre It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart, how he did, how he was really reluctant to do that. He didn't want to do it. He was tired of being compared to Jimmy Stewart. Uh, and, he, and But she convinced him that if he took the role of Joe Fox, it was going to be nothing like that. It's and then so she funny. Also, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's so funny because like nowadays, the last decade, I feel like every holiday season, Tom Hanks does a holiday-ish movie or like a big, so, you know, for wanting, for an actor not wanting to be compared to Jimmy Stewart, he's really leaned into the Jimmy Stewart of it all in the last 10 years. Yeah. I mean, it's been, this is 1998. I don't think he's, maybe he's won an Oscar, maybe maybe he won an Oscar for Philadelphia, but he wants to be taken seriously. He'd won two Oscars at this point. Forrest Gump in Philadelphia like he's the only one to do consecutive I think yeah and so he wants to be taken seriously as an actor and I think that maybe things change as you get older especially in the last 10 years like what are you getting offered the we don't even need to get into that Elvis performance because we've talked about it enough (laughs) so yeah I do and I, I it's interesting to hear these quotes from 1998 now where it's like uh if you could look if you could be a ghost of christmas future and look into what you're currently doing tom hanks you would immediately swallow your words back (laughs) but meg ryan was also reluctant to sign on because she didn't want to be in yet another rom-com but she really likes working with as she put it tom and nora so both actors they were ready to pass on you've got mail they were also really worried it was going to be perceived as a cash grab of sorts but they eventually saw the light on what is a good idea to have not only a reunion between these uh, director and two actors that have tons of chemistry together, but also it'd be a sleepless in Seattle reunion. It's sort of like a no brainer. Plus Meg Ryan locking in. You've got mail was good business for her. Like kind of literally like bottom line wise, it made it her eighth rom-com. And by that she got to increase her fee. So after you've got mail, her per picture price went up to $15 million, something only Jodie Foster and Julia Roberts were getting at the time. Oh, wow. Also, 
Meg Ryan's next movie was going to be yet another Nora Ephron joint hanging up directed by Diane Keaton. So, oh, right. Yeah. And then she was also signed on to do another movie with Nora Ephron and her sister. But it was like a movie about uh, two women after the Korean War called Something in Beach. But I don't think that went anywhere because when I went to look it up, it, uh, the reason why you never heard of it is because it never got made. But a quote from the Warner Brothers co-chair at the time, Terry Schmiel, he told the Entertainment Weekly in the same article that I read, uh, they had asked him, like, oh, are you worried about, you know, chemistry? Can you strike gold twice? And he responded with, quote, you never know if that magic chemistry is going to strike again. But two people falling in love, especially these two people in reference to Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, they have international appeal. If there was such a thing as a perfect couple, Tom and Meg are it. They're like Mr. and Mrs. World, which I thought was just a very interesting quote because that was true at the time. And now into like some of the supporting characters. I think this movie, yes, of course, everybody loves Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Like they're perfect together. They're Linda Evangelista. Everybody loves them. But I think what really makes this movie are is the supporting cast, are, are all the character actors. And I'm going to start with my favorite Sarah J. Diaz Ramirez, a young <laughs> J. Diaz, plays the role of Rose, the disgruntled, happy Thanksgiving back cashier who tells Meg Ryan to get in another line. It's their very first on-screen role, their very first IMDb credit. Following You've Got Mail's release, they made their stage debut in The Cape Men, a Broadway musical, the role that turned... That role turned them into a major stage star. Then they went on to be in The Lady of the Lake uh, and then the music of the musical of Spamalot, which also then won them a Tony for Best Featured Actress in a Musical. Obviously, besides the role and Just Like That, they are best known as Dr. Callie Torres on Grey's. So clearly, Rose went on to do great things. Steve Zahn, a.k.a. George Pappas, a.k.a. the himbo of Kathleen Storr, prior to You've Got Mail, he has started to make a name for himself as like the charming sidekick and stuff like Reality Bites, Object of My Affection, That Thing You Do. And then he basically has kept up that streak ever since. And well, now he's pivoted to dads uh, in The Tall Girl or Tall Girl or whatever that's called. And then he was most recently on the first season of White Lotus. Yeah. When in regards to Steve Zahn, did Hanks recommend him for You've Got Mail because he directed That Thing You Do and Zahn was in it? I wouldn't be surprised. I didn't come across that anywhere, but that would make total sense, especially, yeah, you know, that thing you do is like 1996 and this is 1998. Kind of yeah. makes sense. Steve's on, I don't think any, I don't think I've ever seen anything about him being like a prick <laughs> in real life. So no. I don't know why you wouldn't want to hire him. And he's, I mean, he's great. He's like the, he's great comic relief. The whole, um, his delivery about like, maybe he didn't show up to your date because he's getting arrested. Because <laughs> he sees this story about like a burglar. Like in the one call, he, he had to call his lawyer. And that's why he didn't call you. The rooftop killer. The rooftop killer. Thank you. Like, didn't he like break his arms at one point? <laughs> Anyway, on to Heather Burns, another entry in the first IMDb, IMDb credit crew. She played Christina, employee number two, and actually worked in a children's bookstore with Meg Ryan in New York City before they shot for this role. Two years later, she would become Cheryl Fraser in Miss Congeniality. And again, much like her bookstore counterpart, Steve Zahn, would go on to have a very Judy Greer-like best friend career. Then we've got Greg Kinnear, who is the quirky typewriter-obsessed boyfriend of Kathleen, Frank, which also another, like, Tom Hanks connection. He collects typewriters, too. I just find that yeah. to be funny. 
Greg Kinnear was already in an upswing prior to You've Got Mail. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for As Good As It Gets the same year that You've Got Mail came out. And Greg Kinnear is still in stuff now. He's Greg Kinnear. I don't really know what else to say. Parker Posey, my indie Christopher Guest queen. She was mostly known for indie comedies at this time. Uh, This is like up until, you know, late 90s. And this is probably one of her more mainstream titles. Uh, I love her character, Patricia Eden. I would totally get hit by a bus for her. Where are my Tic Tacs is an iconic (laughs) line. And then sigh dave chappelle remember when dave chappelle was actually funny pre chappelle show he was trying to be an actor and he was in robin hood men in tights con air nutty professor half-baked which he co-wrote and i think maybe co-directed but he definitely wrote it um i think that's why it's such a shock to me to see him as tom hanks's semi-hired best friend kevin jackson because he was always way too cool for joe fox I can't say that Chappelle was in too many rom-coms after this since he took a way harder pivot into stand-up and sketch comedy. And, well, we all know what a personified groan he is today. So little detail on Chappelle. He allegedly was offered a rule in Forrest Gump and turned it down. And so when he got this opportunity, that's why he he took the, the, do- the job. Mm. Interesting. Yes. Well, he brought up a lot of great supporting characters in this movie, which is really something cool about this movie, which is that there are a lot of cut scenes and character reductions in the movie and characters that were eliminated altogether. The film is nearly two hours long, which I always forget when I put it on that you need, you know, you need two hours for it. It's not a it's not a 90 minute rom-com. Uh, So when the movie came in way too long, many subplots had to be trimmed down. Efron basically gave every character in this movie their own subplot, which would have made this movie a super long movie. But it could have been a very fun miniseries if if I don't want it to be a miniseries because it's perfect the way it is. But, you know, just food for thought. Originally, there was more around Christina's dating adventures. And also George dated a director a detective he believed might actually be the rooftop killer and then (laughs) then why did she structure it like a sitcom why does every minor character get a subplot i don't know but she really i mean i think it's the west you know it's the the west village of it all it's like the upper west side like it's supposed to be these this cast of quirky characters who live in this neighborhood Hmm. but but Deborah Rush's character, Veronica, is only featured in the elevator scene. She's the one with the fur coat and the dog. Oh, sure. Two fun, two fun facts about that, though. One, the chihuahua that she is holding in the elevator scene is was actually Nora Ephron's real-life dog, Lucy. And she kept um, – and Nora felt so bad about cutting her character – um, because originally Veronica is a writer and the publishing party is being thrown in her honor by Patricia, but we lose that plot altogether. We just think that they end up at a publishing party that, you know, that's where Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks meet and, um, and realize who one another are at that very moment. Um, Nora Ephron felt so bad about cutting Deborah Rush that she promised Deborah Rush a scene in a future movie, and she kept that promise 10 years later by casting her in Julie and Julia. Also, in the original script, Joe and Kathleen's exes, Patricia and Frank, end up getting together. And finally, Michael Palin, who plays 
a character we don't even see in the movie because his entire character was eliminated. He played this mysterious novelist who hits on Kathleen after he comes out of hiding to try and help save the shop around the corner. And the scene was based on a character in the 1940 movie, and it included him grabbing and trying to kiss Kathleen before she kicks him in the shin and runs away. Very happy Nora cut that just because it like even he, Michael Palin, the actor, was like, this was way too creepy for this movie. Yeah, there are some interesting interviews with Nora Ephron talking about how her directing style evolved over time. Like, we were talking about it a little bit before we started recording about how, like, in her first movie, nobody moved around. So she really made up for it in Sleepless in Seattle where people were bouncing around like ping pong balls. And then she said that she made... When she made You've Got Mail, she was really tired of people telling her that her dialogue scenes were too long. But then once she got in the editing bay, she's like, oh, right. And then she just cut a bunch of stuff. <laughs> and she's like, every movie is a learning experience. <laughs> we we appreciate a queen who's into growth. <laughs> right. And you know, you got to kill your darling. So just you got to cut that whole Michael Palin scene out of there. Indeed. So despite mixed reviews and even today, a 69% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, You've Got Mail debuted at number one in the North American box office and went on to gross over $250 million globally. Until 2018, its lasting physical legacy was the movie's original website, which was live until May of 2018, kind of like that Space Jam site, which is funny because they're both Warner Brothers films. And besides that, I think what's so interesting about this movie um, is it shouldn't be as wildly and popular and beloved as it is almost 25 years later because of how dated it is. Um, and yet it still works and we all still watch it at least once a year. And I think it's because both Efron's writing transcends time and they made rom-coms together that were smart and really kept the female perspective central. I think this is a great example of a rom-com. And I'll say this with like most Nora Efron rom-coms, like the female characters are relatable. They look like normal people. Like they're gorgeous actresses, obviously, but you you could know these people. They wear normal clothing. They're like, they work normal jobs. They're not always a 25-year-old editor at a fashion magazine who just magically got that job. Like it's very realistic. And even to the point where in the spirit of Nora Ephron's meticulous attention to detail, Meg Ryan's character wears pretty kind of normal clothing throughout. Like the most lavish thing she wore during the entire filming was in the final scene the dress she's wearing is actually a mark a mark jacobs dress and they put a cardigan over it just to make it a little less flashy like that's how that's how like relatable and i i think what works with this film is that level of relatability you could potentially know meg ryan's character and the other people who work at this bookstore but yeah that's that's what i have on you've got mail do you have any final thoughts I was really curious since you brought it up, Rotten Tomatoes score for while you were sleeping. Do you want to guess? Do you know what it is? I'm going to guess people are cruel. 57%. Ooh, my friend, you were incorrect at a certified fresh at 81%. Oh, higher than you've got mail? Higher than you've got mail. And also the one that's pretty close in audience score. It's the 79% audience score. Oh, I need I to feel check like the 81 audience. is correct, though. That feels like the correct score. It feels, I mean, yeah, I think for, I think While You Were Sleeping is a great movie. So I like, I feel like it should be 81%, but they were so cool to You've Got Mail that I just like, I don't always trust Rotten Tomatoes. So the, so like I said, it was 69%, excuse me, it's now 70, 
Wikipedia uh, needs to update itself because it's gone up to 70% and a 73% audience score. But I feel like I feel like these both deserve 80. 73% audience. Why is that so low? I don't Doesn't know. Doesn't everybody love You've Got Mail? Apparently there are some monsters out there. Ugh. Yeah. I would I shudder to think about the one-star reviews on Amazon. Oh god. <laughs> I refuse to acknowledge them and I will never look at them. <laughs> I only read one-star reviews on Goodreads because those are funny. <laughs> those are always very funny. Or if how did this get made, you know, that yes, other than that though. <laughs> right. Yeah, they always get the good ones, but the, and sometimes those and those are the movies that honestly deserve the one star, so you're fine. I I'm still haunted by the ones they mentioned during the Jack Frost episode. Like talk about a Christmas movie. <laughs> Yeah, the person that's like, I make a snowman in the middle of a field every Christmas for my dad. I'm like, oh, my God. I think Jason Van Zuckers is like, this is a suicide note, you guys. That's what we just read. <laughs> it's so bleak. Can't say that the reviews for 12 Pups of Christmas is any better, though. <laughs> no, that's that's for sure. <laughs> On that very bleak note, <laughs> we want to uh, just say thank you once again for continuing to listen to our podcast. We appreciate the love. Um, and we are just so excited, um, that we were able to bring you a fantastic season and can't wait to share what's in store in 2023. Thank you everybody for a great season eight, eight seasons yes. already. Yes. Eight seasons, yes. 101 episodes wouldn't be here without all of you. So thank you guys. We hope all of our listeners have a happy holidays and we'll be back in the springish of 2023. We will be back in the springish of 2023. <laughs> we'll, we'll be sure to let you know on our various uh, ways that you can reach us because guess what? <laughs> we have a Patreon. That's right. If you are so sad that the season is ending, but you want more old millennials content, you can go over to our Patreon. $5 a month will get you two at least two pieces of bonus content because guess what, baby? This month we are giving you three. And last month we gave you three. So come on over for five bucks a month. Old we can go to patreon.com slash old millennials pod. Additionally, if you love how creative we are on this podcast, you're gonna love our social media because we have an Instagram and we have a Facebook. You can find us on both at the old millennials pod where I continue to get better at using Canva on a daily basis and try it. <laughs> This is an aspirational podcast. <laughs> I, you know, I like to support female billionaires and turns out Canva is one of the largest tech companies female that's female owned and operated. So we, we have no choice but to stand. She's women, not a Holmes. <laughs> women in STEM. <laughs> That's us. Oh. That that's Canva. That's us. That's this podcast. Women in STEM. Support it <laughs> via Instagram, Patreon, or a five star review. Five star reviews, baby. I'd be remiss if we didn't mention those. But <laughs> until next time, we say bye bye. Bye. See you in twenty twenty three.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 